What if you found yourself needing to go up against powerful men and powerful women? How do you get them to listen to you? In this Imagine Talks podcast episode, one actress and activist had to do just that. She did this halfway around the world to stand against crimes. And she did it again in front of leaders and executives to take a stand for organizational transformation. Minita Ghani is known for her work on NBC primetime television's Chicago Fire, and more recently as a voice actor in Disney Animation, and has played significant roles as a first-generation Indian-American female performing artist. Here's Minita with the responsibility of privilege. Hi, Mita. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Francis. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing well. We're um, super excited to have you here with us on Imagine Talks. And I have all these amazing questions that I want to ask you. Uh, you do so much amazing work for the community. Um, and let's just get started with this. Um, the first thing I would love for you to share with everybody is just, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you ended up now as an actor and activist and also a healer. Like how did you come into those three roles now? Uh, thank you. So I, I think healing has been a big part of my life. I mean, it's, I think when I was young, if someone had a headache, I didn't know exactly what it was, but I would be trying to send energy to them to make them feel better. And as I got older, um, you know, I was also just, always mesmerized and drawn to stories and storytelling. So I was the kind of kid who, you know, I'd ask my mom to leave the light on for an extra five minutes before bed. And I'd have six books tucked under my pillow. And then I would just, you know, voraciously try to read through whatever it was. And I was just enamored with words and what words and the power of words, what they could do. Um, so I think that's how I ended up coming into you know, acting and writing, it wasn't something that I knew I could pursue as a career. I was born in India. We came to the States when I was pretty young and we were in New York, you know, so we were on the East Coast. We were in South Bend, Indiana for about four years. And then we were in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the whole time I thought, you know, well, my dad is an engineer. Everyone I know is a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. And um, I was really interested in English and writing and history. So for my parents, you know, they were really surprised when I came home from, you know, college one day and I said, I took a theater elective. I got cast in the school production, you know, of Taming of the Shrew and I want to be an actor. And it was just, you could have, you know, a pin could drop and you could hear it. And then I just remember them both basically feeling like, what did we do wrong as parents? Why are you choosing this hobby? They just kept calling it a hobby. I think up until a few years ago, my dad still called it my acting hobby, no matter what I did. But, uh, you know, it was just such a strange avenue for them, which I know, thank goodness, it's not anymore. Uh, but I, I realized that through stories, stories provide healing, whether it's on a personal spiritual level, whether it's, you know, socio-politically, 
it's one of the only avenues we have to present something to somebody in an objective way so they can actually see themselves and, and write something, um, you know, that they might feel is wrong for themselves or in the world. And I think that's also where my activism stepped in. I, I believe that we all should be living the happiest lives that we can. And that is everybody's right. I believe that joy is everybody's right. And I think that it is also our responsibility to fight for not only ourselves, but for our communities. And I think that's also coming from a spiritual practice of, I definitely believe that we are all connected. So if there is one person that is in pain, we are all in pain. And so, you know, as a society, I really hope and try to push for making those pains, you know, go away for whoever we can. And, you know, sometimes those, uh, those fights are, and those battles are easier than others, you know, which is why it's important that we all stand up in the moment. I think there's a lot of avenues for activism. I think art is one, healing is another, you know, standing up for someone you don't know in a moment where you see injustice happening is being an activist. Mm -hmm. Okay, fantastic. And and when you're now in a role of being an activist and, and you also went to the role of being an actor and a healer as well too, um, you do a lot of traveling from my understanding is you travel obviously back and forth between the States and also parts of India, right? And you know, I've had this conversation before and this is especially relevant here from a collective experience in 2020, this word that we, I don't think we use this word so much as we ever did in 2020, but the word privilege, right? Yeah. And and of course, privilege is relative, right? Because you have to have privilege relative to someone else and, and have lack of privilege relative to someone else, right? So when you go back to India, um, you obviously have, as an American citizen, even though you are uh, Indian ethnicity, you probably have a lot more privilege than the typical Indian citizen. And you've also talked a lot about as an actor and as an activist and a healer, that level, that connection, when you say like when one person is hurt, everyone is hurt in the community. That's a, that implies to me a huge level of responsibility that each person has to the next person. What is, is, if there is, what is the connection between, in your opinion, and any stories and any experience we've had, what's the connection between privilege and responsibility? I think there's a huge connection between privilege and responsibility. And, you know, I, I do, I have had, you know, I think travel in itself is a privilege and I've had the ability to travel many places, whether it be, you know, for acting or writing gigs around the country or world. Um, and also in my activism, one thing I should speak to uh, which speaks to your last question is in terms of activism, my activism has over the years defined itself by, I, I'm, a, I'm a real big activist for women's rights. I'm a real big activist for survivors. I am also a survivor and I'll speak to that in a moment. Um, and I am also an activist in terms of bridging access. And I do, I, that, you know, has fallen into place in terms of, my activism towards mentorship, that we should all have access to knowledge, we should all have access to jobs, we should all have access, you know, to, to all of that. 
And I believe that mentorship really does create that level of access. Um, you know, when I go back to India, I do feel a certain level of privilege as an American citizen, um, at least I have in the past, I haven't been in the past couple of years, but specifically in 2009, when I went to India, I went for one of my brother's weddings. It was a beautiful trip, uh, but also in my spiritual journey, I wanted to go to a meditation center and my parents were a little apprehensive about me traveling alone in India, you know, but as a woman who's traveled around the world, I, you know, I fought really hard and I said, no, I, I can, I can do this. So my dad went with me, we took a sleeper train and he spent one night there with me and then he left. And um, unfortunately, while I was there, the doctor who ran that meditation facility uh, came to my room at night and assaulted me. And it was, you know, obviously a moment I will never forget. I was able to maneuver out of it before it got to the worst of it. And, and after I escaped that situation, and I remember feeling something I've never felt before, which is that was the only time in my life I've experienced, you know, being willing to die for something. And I was willing to die to speak up versus just leaving the country as what everybody was advising me to do because the place where I was assaulted was attached to one of the largest Hindu temples in India. So it's like filing a complaint against the Catholic church. And there's so much reputation and money and privilege tied up into that, that you know nothing can is supposed to mar that reputation. But I remember very strongly feeling as though I didn't think it was the first time this doctor had come to somebody's room this way. He was drunk. And I, as an American citizen, knew that I would be able to leave the country, that I would not have to see this person again, and that I did have an opportunity and, the and I felt a responsibility to speak up so that this doctor could not do what he did to me to any other woman or person. And um, even my own father was really against me doing that because uh, you know he thought we would get killed. There was a mm. there was a feeling that we would be killed mm. if we spoke up. And so I fought with my father and I said I'll do this alone. And he said no. So we luckily had some help from some strangers, and um, we went to the temple and we fi I filed a complaint at the temple. I was put into a room with 10 men, um, some of the head men from the temple. They actually um, brought the doctor into the room and the doctor did not know that I spoke Gujarati, uh, which is uh, my native tongue that I grew up with. And he started speaking in Gujarati and saying that I was an American actress and that I had called him over to my room in the middle of the night and he refused and went home to his wife. And I remember in that moment, you know, it was myself and this other woman who was helping me because I didn't want my dad in that room because I didn't want my dad to hear the details. I just remember thinking, am I crazy? Did I make this up? Everybody in this room is looking at me as though I'm lying. This doctor is saying that I'm lying. And I just remember sitting in that chair and I hadn't showered, you know, it was the next day and I hadn't showered. And I still had, you know, dried blood on my legs. I could feel all of this on my body. And, and I stood up and I, it wasn't a moment where I had thought about it. 
I just stood up and I started speaking in Gujarati very slowly. And I said that I, I speak Gujarati. This doctor is not telling the truth. And if he doesn't tell the truth, I will go to the police. I will go to the UN. I will file a public complaint and make a legal complaint. And that's when the whole room shifted and they and their response is, it still baffles me. Their response inside of a temple, these holy men said to me, do you want us to beat him? And I just said, no, we're standing in a house of God, you know, beating him doesn't take back what he did to me or give me back my integrity. And, you know, they were like, what do you want us to do? Um, and I said, I want him to tell the truth. And so he just, you know, reluctantly said, <laughs> and, and with a lot of apathy, I think too, just, I remember him leaning back in his chair and he just said, fine, everything she said is true as though that would make everything better. And so I said, I want his wife to know what he did. Um, I want him not to be able to practice on women alone. And I asked for 50,000 rupees to be donated to an organization that the woman who helped me, um, that she would choose. And they said, that's a lot of money. This is not America. And then I just remember they, they, they stopped, you know, in the middle of saying America. And I don't know if it was the look on my face or what it was, but they stopped and then they just conceded. And my dad and I left India, you know, switching bunks in the middle of the night, worried we were going to be followed and killed. Uh, and then we came home. You know, we a few days later, it, and it was around this time um, that year in 2009, you know, it was, we spent Christmas in India. It was such a strange time and we flew home. But I remember very strongly feeling, you know, I spent years healing from that, that there, you know, I had a, I had a certain amount of privilege as an American woman in that in that, in that surrounding, being, being an American woman did give me some level of privilege, you know, and, and being able to get away from that situation literally and leave the country gave me a certain level of privilege. And so I spoke out feeling that I was at least able to hopefully prevent somebody in that community who might not be able to speak out for whatever reasons, um, you know, that hopefully they are protected. And I think, I think that's really um, you know, important. I, I think similarly, you know, 2020, this, this dumpster fire of a year that we've had, um, has, has also brought a lot of things to surface. You know, we, we've definitely been all, you know, it's not really all of a sudden we are a country full of racial injustice. We are a country that is built on stolen lands and appropriated lands, you know, from indigenous people and are just, are just now as a nation really acknowledging it the way that it should have been acknowledged years ago. You know, we're really just acknowledging the way we have treated our black community and people of color. And, you know, I worked with an arts organization for about four years. So I, I started a mentorship program with a girlfriend of mine in Chicago um, you know, I, I was working with a corporate company working and I built a women's leadership program. And one of the modules we had was on mentorship. I had presented on mentorship and uh, leadership in the arts for women, uh, business leadership for women in the arts. And 
this you know, woman approached me and said, I like what you said. I would love to build a mentorship program with you. I got so excited because I never had a woman mentor, uh, a woman mentor in the arts. And I thought, why don't we give this to others? And we built it together in Chicago. And then my partner wanted to work with Statera Arts, which is the organization that we had met at where I was speaking. Um, and they had had a mentorship program put it on pause and you know that's all I knew about that program so here we had built the infrastructure for this wonderful program in Chicago and we were connecting women and non-binary artists and then they were excited that we had something that worked so it it all seemed to go together now within that as I was entering that organization I very much recognized that this was an organization that was led by all white women and so I was going to be the only person of color working at that organization. And I say working in parentheses because my first two years there, I was paid zero dollars. We built a national program. By my fourth year in 2020, we had 60 regional coordinators underneath us. And we had connected over a thousand women and non-binary artists over the country in 19 different cities. Um, the fourth year that I was there and doing all of that, I was making $625 a quarter. That's it, working 80 plus hours a month. And there's a huge level of inequity there for an organization that is an arts equity organization. I think back on my four years there, and the reason I bring all of this up is because, you know, a lot of times as artists, as people of color, as women of color, we're sort of taught to be so grateful for the work we're taught that our generosity of spirit has no value. And this doesn't happen to white men. It just doesn't. And so after four years of being there, and there were so many things that came up, but I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of it. The final straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, was when the executive director of that organization wouldn't allow my partner and I to put a statement in our mentorship email that said Black Lives Matter, that said we support anti-racism. Mm -hmm. We are in solidarity with Black Indigenous people of color. And she said that they had a statement on the website and that was enough. And that's when I realized this very white woman with you know blonde hair and blue eyes just literally didn't know what it was like to exist in the world not looking like her. and. I just couldn't stand for the level of hurt and trickle down effect it was doing for the communities that we represented in our mentorship community. So I wrote them a letter. Um, I made a formal statement to the entire executive team. It was 20 minutes long. Um, I gave them a number of calls to action, including change in leadership, financial transparency. I was met with, you know, all the things you read about in terms of white fragility, like tears and I see you and I hear you. And these were women that I had affinity for, you know, one of them was one of my closest, dearest friends. I considered her a sister. And, and so they all seemed ready to make the change. And I assumed that they would because they had good intentions. Fast forward about a month, you know, they couldn't handle that part of being accountable was actually addressing the people that they hurt, people like myself, and others in the community that had been directly hurt by the actions that they did or didn't do. 
um, you know, because inaction is also an action, and they took a lot of inaction at times. Um, I paid someone out of pocket $175 to transcribe the meeting in which I gave them the statement um, so that they could have all my calls to action. And I said, I, I, I said, fine, I will wait until this mentorship class ends to publicly resign, but I would like everybody internally to know about all of the things that have happened because if you're really here to do the work, people should know exactly where you haven't been doing the work so they can help you be accountable and do better. I was met with, you know, shock. I was met with anger. I was met with language such as, please consider what is punitive versus what is generative. I was met with, um, you know, Minita, it seems to me like you want credit. And we were having some of these conversations before you made this statement. Um, and, and I just said, you know, everything that I can offer is in my calls to action. Uh, I sent them the transcript once I got it. And the next day I woke up and I was um, cut off from my Gmail, all these communities that I helped build, um, cut off to all the access to the Google Docs that I had helped create. And some of them that I was, you know, responsible for originating and creating. And, um, and I was given an email in my private email box that said, effective immediately, we heard you that you no longer want to be part of mentorship. Um, you are released from your duties. Please don't, uh, it is our expectation that you don't contact anyone at this organization, anyone affiliated with this organization. And in the same moment, they sent an email to everyone in the community saying, we're Statera Arts, we have work to do. And then they listed almost all of my calls to action except for financial transparency and a change in leadership. And I remember receiving that email and I was crying. I mean, I felt so attacked and abused. It, you know, they're very different situations, but the trauma really triggered what happened to me in India when somebody just violates you in a certain kind of way. And, um, you know, I realized, you know, when we talk about a very, this is a very long answer about the link between privilege and responsibility, but the link between privilege and responsibility is if you have committed a harm, you have to be accountable. That is part of your responsibility is to not try to publicly put out all these accountability reports and save face, but it should be. Responsibility is about right relationship between the party that committed harm and the party that received the harm. And I think right now as a nation, we're really struggling with that. We've seen a lot of organizations you know, put up statements. We're in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. We're in solidarity with anti-racism, but it's the actions that matter. So, um, you know, activism is acting in the moment when the thing that happens is, you know, when the wrong is committed, speaking up to it then. And it's also, you know, unfortunately as comfortable, as uncomfortable as it is, it's recognizing, oh my gosh, I didn't see, or I didn't know, or I didn't realize, and I hurt you in this way. And I'm going to first make it right with you. And then and then I will work on doing better in the world. And I think that that link about accountability um, is still missing. I also think privilege and responsibility is sometimes you're gonna have more privilege in the room than somebody else. 
So just take a moment, take stock, recognize where you have more privilege because you have more money, because you have more power, because of race, whatever it might be, because of your job and where somebody doesn't have that privilege. And are they suffering an injustice in the room? And you can use your privilege to you know, eradicate that. And I think that is so important for all of us to do, um, not only for ourselves, but for each other. I love that. And I know we're definitely coming to the end of our time here. Do you have anything that you wanna share in terms of the lessons that you've learned and how this translates into what you believe that we could have all, potentially have gone through globally and as a community, as an Asian American community as well too, in 2020, um, what we've learned from this and what hopefully we can be like going forward from 2021 onward? Well, I think 2020 has been, you know, an unexpected pause for a lot of us. You know, I think we've talked about this uh, before that, you know, up until this year happened and the pandemic happened, we were all moving towards certain outcomes, right? A lot of people tell me, especially in my healing work, this was gonna be the best professional year of my life and then I lost all of my jobs or I was moving towards this thing personally and then this fell through. And so what it's forced us to do is take the pause and really examine what is truly important to us. How am I living in right relationship with self and truth and purpose versus how am I living for others, other people's outcomes, expectations? Um, how much am I living through belief systems that have been put on me by media and family and friends versus what is right for me? So I think moving forward, um, take the time, take this time right now because we probably won't ever have it again. And if there is a silver lining of right now is that in this pause, we have the ability to take a moment, be introspective, connect to our intuition, connect to our truth, and then live out of that purpose. Uh, and that's a beautiful thing we can do moving forward into 2021. And I think a lot of us will find that part of that purpose will be when we're living in that truth and purpose, we'll be kinder not only to ourselves, but to others. We will be more forgiving to not only ourselves, but to others. And um, so I think that there can be a silver lining to right now if we really want to do the work. I love it. Thank you so much, Nita, for always sharing your journey, your wisdom, your insights. Um, I have no doubt that uh, that's going to help a lot of people moving forward from this point onward. We have more wisdom now. We have new tools. And I really truly believe that we can only get better from this point onward. So thank you again for always being part of our community and helping us heal as you do so well. Um, take care, and I look forward to seeing you hopefully in 2022 on stage and in person. I would love that. Thank you so much, Francis. You take care. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye, Manita. Bye. Thanks for joining us. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Imagine Talks, go to our website at imaginetalks.org. Edge Interns and Mental Power Hacks supports this podcast. 
Edge Entrance sources the best interns to the best companies. Learn more at E-D-G-E. That's edgeinterns.com. Mental Power Hacks is where you'll get life hacks to boost your mental performance, productivity, and success. Connect at mentalpowerhacks.com. Subscribe to us and get the latest episodes of the Imagine Talks podcast, Achieving Success, Social Impact, and Overcoming Obstacles. See you next episode.